Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And um, the point of gaslighting is to get the target, <clears throat> excuse me, is to get the target to accept the gaslighter's version of the story, which is exactly what we see have seen in America is that America insists, you know, that it is not a it was not founded as a place <laughs> where inequality was a part of the design, that it was not founded on inequality. It tries not to teach its history of imperialism and imperial violence in, you know, the Philippines, for instance, in Puerto Rico and South America. You know, not to mention the horrors of slavery and how terrible and just how heinous the system of, of chattel slavery was in America. And um, we're, we're continuing to see these attempts to do that with, you know, Republicans uh, today who try to say that there was no coup on January 6th, 2021. Uh, people trying to ban books or recommending that certain books be burned because they tell the truth. About American history, this this con this hysteria around uh, CRT, critical race theory, and all these things, you know, are ongoing, you know, uh, instances of a systemic effort to tell us, especially tell us Black people, that we don't really understand our reality, and we need to just accept the gaslighter's point of view. Do you? Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson. And before we get into this week's guest, I uh, just wanted to give you guys a little insight into what's going on in my life right now. Uh, normally, wouldn't necessarily do this, but um, obviously, for those of you who have been steady listeners, um, A, I appreciate you, and, and B, um, obviously, there haven't been a ton of new episodes recently. And so, wanted to give you guys a little insight into what's going on and, and perhaps why. That has been the case. So, um, you know, I believe that that people go through seasons, and uh, right now my season is uh, uh, <laughs> uh, complicated and um, uh, trying. I think is the word I'm looking for. Uh, it, it's been one of those. It's been one of those last six month periods. So, uh, just a number of things on a personal level have have uh, have happened. Uh, and I'm uh, essentially, at least mentally speaking, uh, and perhaps emotionally, uh, just trying to stay afloat at the moment. So someone's someone very, very, very close to me. Um, I will uh, respect their privacy. But someone very, very close to me in my immediate family uh, has been diagnosed with cancer. And uh, it's one of those situations where until that uh, person goes um, into surgery, they won't really know the extent of, um, how worried we need to be. Um, and so, um, I know they're, they are, uh, very, very optimistic. We are all very, very optimistic. Um, I think they've caught it early enough to the point where I think we'll, uh, we'll see some, uh, pretty hopefully, uh, short and successful, uh, treatment, but, um, 
you know, there's probably a lot of you out there who have experienced it firsthand or have had a family member, close to family member, uh, go through that sort of thing. And, um, either way it's, it's, it's pretty scary, you know, and, uh, you don't want to see a loved one, uh, go through something like that, but thank God for, for great doctors and, and great technology and advancements in science. Uh, so that's, that's the big main thing right now. And, and as you can imagine, uh, having conversations like that with, um, young child, you know, I have a daughter who is eight about to turn nine this fall. Um, and just trying to make sure that I answer questions, but also, um, you know, not freak her out. So, uh, so that's been the, the big main thing, uh, amongst some other smaller things that have all just kind of hit me at once. Um, you know, work has been uh, a little tough. I took on a new uh, job promotion in my daytime. Uh, my main job uh, that has ended up being a little more work than I thought it was going to be. Uh, and so um, stretch a little thin at the moment. So I am trying my best. Uh, fortunately, uh, what as I tend to do at the beginning of the year is front load a lot of interviews uh, so I can spend some time on, on editing and, and that sort of thing. And so um, I do have several that I'm very excited to release. Um, but as you can imagine, you know, setting aside time to sit down and edit uh, has been tricky. And so uh, I apologize for the lack of new content and uh, act, activity, as it were. Um, still working on it. Um, and I still hope to, to get some episodes out. I may need to take a slight break, uh, for a month or so this fall. Uh, but I'll, I hope to give you guys a, a heads up notice on that. Uh, not going away. Uh, just, uh, might need to take a slight break just to catch up, uh, and, and that sort of thing. So more to come, but definitely, like I said, have some great episodes, including this one, uh, with Andre Henry that I recorded a, a couple months ago. Very excited to release this one. Um, as we mentioned before, earlier in the year, I did a two-part series on race and racism, uh, specifically in America, and uh, I think that's a conversation that is worth having uh, again and, and continue to have in the future. And so I was fortunate enough to get Andre Henry uh, on the show, and uh, I have another guest uh, that will be the next episode up that I'm very excited uh, to introduce to you as well. Uh, a lot of you may may be familiar with his work as well. So this week, Andre Henry, he is an activist, a musician, um, all around just a really smart guy, uh, really thoughtful, um, the way that he kind of views the world. Uh, we talk about his uh, kind of bolder social experiment that, that he did. Um, I thought it was, was fascinating. And so a lot of really interesting things to say and, and, and uh, worth discussing. And so he's got a book out, um, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. Uh, so go check that out. Um, it, it is out in bookstores now. Uh, definitely pull a lot from that book uh, throughout the the interview. Uh, so hopefully you guys enjoy this. Um, as always, if you like what we're doing here, please um, go to iTunes, uh, rate us, review us, and uh, recommend us to friends. And, and make sure that you uh, that you subscribe so you don't miss a single new episode. If you go to our website, www.thedeconstructionist.com, you can listen to our entire back catalog of episodes there uh, for free. Uh, you can also link to us on social media. You can find our Patreon if you'd like to support us in that way. Uh, or if you just want to get some swag, uh, we've got a web store there where you can pick up a number of different t-shirt designs. Uh, we got some cool pint glasses and coffee mugs uh, and all sorts of fun stuff there. But otherwise, we have a blog there as well that I've got some stuff I'm working on for that. Uh, so we should have some fresh stuff up there soon. Uh, but otherwise, thank you guys for, for hanging in there, uh, being patient with the uh, 
Uh, the lack of new content recently, like I said, uh, I'm trying to trying to keep all things going. <laughs> but uh, you know, sometimes you go through, like I said, a season in your life where there's just a lot going on, and uh, I've got to be um, aware of my own uh, mental health and uh, physical health as well. And so that's been a thing that's taken a little bit of a toll recently. So uh, as I always say, huge advocate for mental health. And, uh, you know, uh, as I've started to go through, uh, some of these, uh, some of these tough times, you know, I've definitely upped my, uh, my visit. So been going weekly, um, I just think it's good to, um, to have somebody to listen and to also help you kind of, uh, put things in perspective and kind of game plan, um, from that perspective. So can't recommend, uh, the mental health aspect enough. So if you out there are going through a similar situation, or if you're just going through a particularly hard period of time uh, in your life, um, you know there there are people, great counselors, great therapists out there uh, who can really, really help. Um, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. So, uh, so go out there and get it. Uh, one of our sponsors right now is BetterHelp.com, and uh, you know if you go there, uh, we've got a discount going on right now. That's one of many resources that you can utilize uh, for for your mental health. So, can't recommend it enough. Uh, go out there and, and get the help that you need. Um, and uh, yeah, with that, uh, without further ado, we'll get to the interview. Again, this is Andre freaking Henry. I found myself and no one's left to tell my tale. My ship has all right. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Andre Henry, thank you so much for being here uh, with me Thanks today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Before we get into it, um, tell people a little bit about yourself, like what you do for a living and uh, uh, and that sort of thing. Sure. Um, so I'm Andre. I am a writer, a singer-songwriter, and um, I do a lot of work around racial justice. So I, I run a racial justice institute. Um, at Eastern University. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, one of the things you, you, you left out, though, is you also have a, uh, a degree from Fuller. And so uh, you are uh, well-equipped to have these, t- <laughs> these types of conversations at that intersection of faith and, uh, uh, and race. Sure. So, yeah, you, you, you left that part out. That's important. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, um, so tell me a, a little bit about your childhood too. Like uh, a lot of folks that I have on, um, it's kind of interesting to know. How did you grow up? Were you raised in a particularly religious household, or, or not really? Uh, no, my household was not religious. I grew up in Stone Mountain, Georgia. Uh, my parents are from Jamaica. My that's where my family is from, and um, my family is not religious in the sense that you know we didn't all go to church together or pray together and all of the kind of stuff but uh my grandmother did go to church a lot and uh she went to an assemblies of god church just around the corner from us in stone mountain and uh it was an assemblies of i think did i already say it's assemblies of god she went to assemblies of god church over there <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> here's repeating it's fine <laughs> and uh me and my my older brother we went to church with her and um i just fell in love with the church and uh, that is how I ended up um, ascribing to Christian faith, if you could say that, and then you know, going into ministry and getting a couple degrees in theology and all that kind of thing. So you got the you got the bug thanks to grandma, and uh, <laughs> ended up 
So what was it, what was kind of your, your plan? Like, obviously you talk about in the book, um, music has always been part of the plan. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so what was kind of the plan going to, to seminary when you got out? Like, what were you intending on doing? Well, when I got out of, well, seminary, okay. So I, my undergrad, I, I got out of, you know, I got a bachelor's in in practical theology and then I graduated and I was saying, I just want to do music, you know? Um, but then I went to New York and I went to New York to do music and I ended up still doing ministry, which I mean, you know, I needed a job. If, if nothing else, it wasn't just that, but, you know, I had a degree <laughs> right. in theology and I uh, ended up being a worship pastor and teaching pastor there. And then from there, I wanted to learn more about the Old Testament because I thought maybe I might want to be an Old Testament professor. And so I, then I moved to um, L.A. to Pasadena to go to Fuller. But by the time I left Fuller, I had already uh, decided that I didn't want to go into teaching theology. And part of that was, you know, just honestly not really knowing where my faith, what I believed about God anymore. And part of that has to do with the political awakening that I write about in my book. Uh, A lot of that was happening while I was at Fuller. Mm. So by the time I graduated I um, I just didn't know. One of the big questions I had was if theology is even useful, you know, for uh, yeah. to help with the struggle for black liberation. You understand? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, you do talk a lot about, obviously, for, I mean, for a lot of us, uh, 2016 was uh, pretty turbulent year and you talk about in the book how um the the election of donald trump uh changed a lot of things mm-hmm. and one of the things it changed was it seemed to really embolden white nationalists on a level that uh i didn't think was even possible and i think yeah. for a lot of us it shoved racism uh kind of brought it to the surface and shoved it right in our faces yeah. um and and it suddenly kind of occurred to everyone like, hey, this, we always just kind of assumed, oh, racism is kind of this far off distant mm-hmm. historical thing that happened in the 50s and 60s and MLK came <laughs> along and everything progressively got better. And it's like, nope, you know, we're still very, very much behind and in need of uh, some work there. Yeah. So talk about that a little bit, like when the election happens, some of the things that you started to see. Well, I was just starting to understand before Donald Trump, actually, just in the years just before he became president, was um, what we mean when we say systemic racism. I didn't really understand what systemic racism is. And so um, I lived with the misconception that um, racism is personal and individual and all that. You know, just like Mm. an emotional problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I start to learn about the history because, you know, I watched Philando Castile bleed to death on Facebook Live in the summer of 2016. And I said to myself, I have to learn everything that I can about how that system works or what, what we mean by that system and how the system works. So by the time Donald Trump was elected president, I had a new understanding of America anyway, because I understood that that is how racial progress seems to happen is that you have movements for black freedom and those movements are, um, what do you want to say? Attacked, challenged, undermined, responded to, whatever you want to do. 
by counter revolutions from white America that are fascist in nature. <laughs> they are just there by nature. There, these these uh, what what some scholars have called a preventive fascism, a preventive uh, fascist counter revolution. And so that's what we were living through when Donald Trump was running for office, and you see all of these white people saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. We need someone like that in office because he's going to preserve our way of life and keep white people from being dispossessed and all of that. Um, was racism more overt? I think Donald Trump was more overt, <laughs> right? And yeah, or I guess I guess a better way to to, to ask that question is it, it seemed not to say that the racism wasn't always there all mm. along. I I I I wonder if. If the folks who are already racist, as it were, um, were just felt more emboldened. Oh, like for it was sure. More like, yes, of course. There were people. You know, yeah. now you have now you have David Duke, you know, celebrating on on oh, uh, election day, saying, you know, um, yeah, our people, our people uh, <sighs> definitely got Donald Trump into office, and so I'm not. I mean, there definitely was a more overt you know, char- character of this. And you saw all of these uh, new white nationalist groups beginning to form around 2016, 2017. I mean, you may even be able to say 2015, you know, with Dylan Roof's attack on um, <clears throat> the church in Charleston that summer. But for sure, you know, the Proud Boys, I think, and some others, the Charleston... Uh, the Charleston riot, I guess you'd call it. I guess, I guess, I guess you could call that a riot. All that kind of thing, and so we definitely started to see kind of the veil pulled back on American history and on American racism and on people's commitment to white power, for sure. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's it. It seemed it was eye opening as a, as a white male who clearly was very. Um, I don't know. Un- oblivious i think mm-hmm. would be probably the right word mm-hmm. to a lot of what was already there mm-hmm. it seemed shocking yeah I, I thought we're better than this man we're better than this and then after it had gone on for so long and you just see um you know these violent uh police confrontations and and straight up murders and, and some you know in a lot of instances it just it 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 was sickening. It was absolutely disgusting to watch. As you said, you watched, uh, you know, some of these things on, uh, I think social media mm-hmm. probably has uh, shined a spotlight on a lot of it where, you know, it probably was a little bit more uh, discreet maybe yeah. before. And now it's, you know, you can't do anything without, you know, a spotlight on you. Oh. Thanks to social media and the internet and instant information. Yeah. Um, and it was, it's been hard to watch, man. So, um, Talk a little bit about, like, in chapter one, you kind of lay out the purpose of the book, and you state very clearly that it's not about, you know, converting racists over to becoming non-racist. Mm. And um, you use this term, you, you talk about the apocalypse, which I loved, uh, and you refer to it as embracing the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Um, explain what you mean by that. Yeah, so what I do in the book is I use the, I use the uh, apocalypse as a kind of analogy, and it's kind of a, the the organizing principle around the book, because... Um, I learned in, you know, in getting these two theology degrees, uh, that I'm not using that much anymore, (laughs) but I, you know, I learned that apocalypse is simply an old Greek word that means to unveil or to reveal. And, 
you know, mm. usually an apocalypse was written to make commentary about politics, about the social political social political moment that the author and their audience is living in, like the one that we have in um in the Christian Bible, read the book of Revelation, right? Which is constantly being used in some way that I don't think that it was written for, you know, because <laughs> agreed, you know, agreed. <laughs> uh, because everyone wants to pretend that the book of Revelation was written for modern day people, but it wasn't. It was written by a political prisoner right. <laughs> living in the first century mm-hmm. in under the you know, under ancient Rome, and he was writing to his people who were subjugated by the Roman Empire, and he wanted to um he wanted to disrupt their patriotism, basically, <laughs> you know, uh, because sounds oddly yes, familiar. Because it? <laughs> what empires are very good at doing is making uh, patriots of the oppressed, and so that's why it was written. And so mm. I feel like that is something that I have experienced in my own life, and I see um, that I see in our culture is that the myth of America, the myths of America's greatness and innocence, and heroism throughout the world is used to keep black people, especially I think from fighting for our own freedom and liberation. And so I hoped, and I I'm writing uh, because I wrote the book that I felt like I needed years ago. And I would say that I needed an apocalypse And I know people today that I think still need that, that need to kind of wake up to see the, see the system, to see the system of racism, the system of violence and domination that, that this country, and not just this country, but, but this country included, you know, has always been. And so that's why I I use that analogy because I think that it is, um, I think that it's apt to talk about a type of intervention that needs to happen um, that can wake up oppressed people who have been lured into admiring and aspiring to be like and to participate in the project of their oppressors. Yeah, that's such a good way to put it. Intervention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it does feel like much of America needs an intervention, uh, a wake-up call. Um, I think it's chapter two you talk about just how racism has evolved and it reminded me a lot of um dr drew hart's book i don't know if you're familiar no, but i know of him he wrote a but book not called the, the trouble book. i've seen oh wait 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 sorry oh, i'm thinking of so another good. drew <laughs> i'm <Okay>. thinking of <laughs> dr drew <laughs> oh that guy yeah no <laughs> no i know who drew hart is and i know his book trouble i've seen yes i'm sorry yes oh no it's okay that's funny um dr drew hart <laughs> little little different but yeah, he talks about, um, his book was really informative for me, uh, just because he, he talks about uh, kind of what you're talking about in chapter two, where racism is, at, at this stage in the game, is so inherently baked into the mm-hmm. system that it's, that racism has become, um, you know, in a lot of ways more subtle. It's not, you know, it's not like it was in the 60s where you necessarily see somebody burning a cross in somebody's front yard, yeah. but it's, it's, it's become part of of the system now. And you talk about that, you talk about forced busing and states rights. And mm-hmm. so the conversation mm-hmm. changed. It was more veiled, but it was still always yes, there. Of course. So talk about that a little bit. Well, I mean, you just mentioned it. I mean, 
I I'm try, I tried to be careful about saying, you know, that now it's baked in. It was always baked in, right? The the founding sure, yeah, fathers absolutely. were racist people. They, you know, like the they, yeah. they believed that most or many of them, you know, believed that African people were not human beings, and that is how they justified keeping them enslaved. While they wrote all of their beautiful documents about how all people are created equal and all that kind of stuff. So, so I mean, that's a part yeah. of it. And what happened in the '60s during the Nixon presidency is that you had these politicians who decided that because. Uh, the civil rights movement was doing what mass mobilizations are so good at doing, which is changing the values and changing the culture. So um, they realized that if they continue to campaign using overtly racist, racist language and all them and all those kinds of things, um, that it's not going to be as popular. It's not going to be as socially acceptable. The, polit- the, the political weather has changed. And so they start using colorblind rhetoric while continuing to pursue, you know, uh, racial inequality. So, um, yeah, that's what happened. But we're not really taught about those things, right? So, and I talk about in the book how because we don't learn those things in school, and um, yeah, we don't learn those things in school. It's not the narrative that's you know really talked about a lot in the media, or at least it hasn't been until more recently. A lot of people don't know those things. And so when we talk about racism, it's very easy for many people to assume that the civil rights movement took. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like it all went oh, away yeah, magically exactly. after. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, no. Yeah. Because um, the thing that we think is that, the, you know, all, or it seems like people think is that the problem was just, you know, people saying the N-word every day and openly and the lynchings and the whites only signs. And those were certainly problems. Right. But even Dr. King, you know, especially near the end of his life, was talking a lot about how, you know, racism has to do with the with the unequal distribution of wealth and power and rights and privileges. Absolutely. So. Talk about, like, you use this term uh, in the book, uh, racial gaslighting. Explain explain to listeners what that means. Well, yeah, you know, uh, if you know, if you know gaslighting, you know racial gaslighting, right? Gaslighting comes from a play where this man is, te- is playing around with his wife's gas-powered lights and telling her that they're only flickering in her head. And so that became this, this term to describe a type of abuse where someone tries to make you question the nature of your reality. And um, the point of gaslighting is to get the target, <clears throat> excuse me, is to get the target to accept the gaslighter's version of the story, which is exactly what we see, have seen in America, is that America insists, you know, that it is not a, it was not founded as a place <laughs> where inequality was a part of the design, that it was not founded on inequality. It tries not to teach its history of imperialism and imperial violence in, you know, the Philippines, for instance, in Puerto Rico and South America, you know, not to mention the horrors of slavery and how terrible and just how heinous the system of, of chattel slavery was in America. And um, we're we're continuing to see these attempts to do that with, 
you know, Republicans uh, today who tried to say that there was no coup on January 6th, 2021. Uh, People trying to ban books or recommending that certain books be burned because they tell the truth about American history. This 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 hysteria around uh, CRT, critical race theory and all these things, you know, are ongoing you know, uh, instances of a systemic effort to tell us, especially tell us black people, that we don't really understand our reality and we need to just accept the gaslighters point of view. Yeah, that's it's it's insane. It, it's um, yeah, you're right. Uh, critical race theory has, has become this kind of tagline. It seems that politicians always find this tagline tagline to latch on to to rail against to kind of you know push votes and retain power and that sort of thing. So like I, I feel and I find that a lot of times when you actually you know sit down and try to have a conversation with somebody about something like critical race theory, they they can't even tell you what it means. Right. You know right. they they actually have no they just know it's bad. They just know it's bad and terrible and we shouldn't you know. Well, so explain to people what that actually what, is. Critical race theory. Basically, critical race theory comes out of critical legal studies where, you know, we're talking about this very thing. People in the field of law were saying, you know, that America has always um, encoded racism inside of the system and they're showing how it was encoded into law. I mean, but you have to go to law school to to learn that, (laughs) you know, like you learn critical race theory in law school or in in a degree program in college if you're taking race studies or sociology or something like that. Yeah. So what what is their argument then? I I guess I don't fully understand it either. Are they suggesting that this is something uh, like these Republican politicians because they keep screaming about it? Are they saying they don't that, have that's an, something they don't that have an, they're trying to they teach don't have an argument? And that's the and that is that's the part that's the point of me talking about gaslighting. When you're arguing with when you're yeah. debating or arguing with a gaslighter, they're not talking to you in good faith. Mm. So it's not even worth going into the details about what critical race theory is and where it came from and what points these Republicans are making. Because if you counter a gaslighter's point, they're just going to pivot to something else. Because the point is not to have this conversation. The point is to undermine the conversation altogether. And it seems also to confuse people as well. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. The the, the point because <laughs> yeah, I hear it and I'll be honest, I have no idea. The point <laughs> is to destabilize you so that you can remain right. under their control. Mm. Like we it just sort of, it, it feels like weird psychological tactics. You that's know? why that's like, why, you know, when, when you when you ask what is the what is the gaslighting, it's a type of psychological abuse. Yeah. And so when applied to racism, it's it's basically telling the person who is suffering who's at the uh, uh, who's on the receiving end of the racism that they're they're not actually experiencing what they're saying they're they're experiencing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and that is what, exactly what we're told. And it kind of goes know, back. We're, we're imagining racism yeah. where it isn't, or that the problem is really that you know we just won't pull up our pants or stay married or or you know stay in school or stay employed and all these things, and we don't talk about the systemic obstacles to you know black people having uh, what we need, you know, to thrive. Yeah, that makes me think of. Um uh, Dr. Miguel uh, De La Torre, mm-hmm. he, he talks about, um, 
he talks about that idea that people are like, well, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And he's like, do you realize that all of your historic wealth was based on free yes. labor and stealing resources exactly. from my people? And exactly. it's like, wow. And, and to your point, like, that's not something that we learn in history. No, class, we don't. You know, we don't up. learn that. And, you know, even beyond that, how the government gave, you know, certain people, you know, uh, I'm thinking of the GI Bill, right? And, you know, making sure that white families yeah. have homes and all those kinds of things that people don't connect their success or their wealth or, you know, those kinds of things to these historical, you know, events. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like, you know, you have this entire uh, section of the country that is prospering and nobody takes a moment to to realize that it's based off of the back of absolutely free labor. Of course, they're prospering. They don't have to pay their employees. That's (laughs) insane. You know, like, of course they are, you know. I would love to have a ton of people work for me for free, but that's not the way reality works. You know, like, come on. Oh, man. Um, One of the things that really hit a button with me, too, in the book is you talk about the right to be angry. And I remember when the protests started and the kind of the narrative is like, oh, man, man, like these folks are so angry and stuff. I'm like, yeah, of course they would be. Wouldn't you know if if this kind of shit had been happening for years over and over and over again and no one is listening to you mm-hmm. uh, they have every right to be mm-hmm. pissed off yeah. like yes so talk about that a little bit like where you, where you discuss that concept in the book like the right just the right to be angry yeah you know because there's because there's the trope of the angry black man or angry black woman you know i um for a long time i was afraid that i would be labeled angry because once white people label you as angry then they tell themselves that, that they don't have to listen to you anymore you know they don't have to take you seriously mm. because they're not taking your anger seriously because they're also not taking your pain seriously they don't take the history seriously, right? And so basically what they're trying to tell you is that you you, sh- you shouldn't trust your own body, right? Because your body is a source of wisdom. Your body actually communicates much faster than your rational brain does, the executive part of your brain. <clears throat> White supremacy wants for you, wants for us to stay in the mind because the mind is where you can rationalize all kinds of things. You can rationalize all kinds of things away in your mind, but your body, you know, your body is giving you most often, or I should, maybe shouldn't say most often, but often your body is giving you uh, true in, information. You know, I say I, 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 I temper that by because I'm considering what trauma does to the body, because sometimes sometimes trauma you have a trauma response to something and maybe you're not experiencing that exact danger, but something feels familiar and maybe you might be mistaken about that, but that's not how white people are talking to us. They're just talking to us. Like we don't know what we're talking about because we're not saying we're not repeating the story that they were given in school about themselves, about their country. So when I talk about the right to, to, to remain angry in the book, I'm talking about breaking free of the fear of being labeled as an angry black black person because the anger the anger is valid especially because the the system has not changed not enough not enough to where you know we can just all you know be happy and just say all right well you know we're we're all equal and we we don't have to talk about this anymore no like we still have 
so much, you know, there's the racial wealth gap and we saw black people disproportionately mm-hmm. dying from COVID-19 or catching COVID-19, you know, during the pandemic phase because of all of these systemic channels that were already built into American society. So, um, so I write about that and writing about also how anger can be constructive, how it, if, First off, it, it, it means that we understand what's happening to us. That means that our body is working. It's doing what it's supposed to do. So that's a good sign. And second, um, that if you're angry about something, that means your body is telling you that something is not right. It means that, you know, you your body is saying things should not be this way. And if your body knows that, if you know that, then you must you must have some idea of how things ought to be. Which, which is your vision of tomorrow. And that is like the first thing that you need for building movement, for building a movement to, um, for building a movement for change. You have to start with the vision of tomorrow. And so I get into that in that chapter and talking about how, you know, if you, if you care about this, but you don't know where to start, then maybe you should think about what, what makes you angry because like I said, if you know that if you know that things ought not to be that way, then you know that you know things ought to be some other way. So maybe that's where you should be working. Maybe you should find other people or an organization that's working on that so that you can join that. One of the things that that you also talk about in the same chapter that I think was was came to the forefront. It came to light. I think a lot of people are educated during the protest because a lot of statistics came out, and I know like. For a lot of people, facts don't matter anymore. For me, I, I think facts still matter. <laughs> like, still think facts are very important. Um, but the fact of the matter is, like, and you talk about this in the book, is there is a massive disparity between the ways in which white people are treated by law enforcement and the way that black people and people of color mm-hmm. are treated by law enforcement. It's undeniable. The facts mm-hmm. prove it. It shows it. And you talk about. Uh, you give a great example of the white terrorist, Dylan Roof, who literally walks into a church and shoots and kills nine mm-hmm. people. And not only are the police, do the police not gun him down, yeah. uh, but they're able to arrest him and even took him to Burger King. And like, we see, like, we, it just seems like every week there's another black man who is dying at the hands of law mm-hmm. enforcement. And it's like, why did it have to get to that mm-hmm. point? And so talk about that a, a, a little bit. About the discrepancy between white and black people with the police? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the lived experience. Like, there's obviously, you know, as I said, the statistics don't lie. I mean, there's a huge yeah. gap between, yeah. Yeah, you know, I feel like it's very simple, you know? Like, it just, and yeah, people can look at the studies. You know, there was a Harvard study in 2020 that showed that black men were three times as likely to be brutalized by the police in a police encounter, you know. Um, in 2016, that number I thought I thought it was five times as likely. But there are studies every couple of years that come up with the same result: black people are disproportionately brutalized by the police, black people are disproportionately incarcerated, and it's not because crime rates are. It's not because there's more crime amongst black people, you know. First off, the reason why the reason why you live by people that look like you most of the time has to do with white supremacy in the first place, you know. And so, you know, people want to say I'm bringing that up because a lot of people's rebuttal has been, you know, black on black crime. But 
actually, when you look at the data, the crime rates in black and white communities proportionately, proportionally are very similar, you know. And that's because white people tend to live by other white people and black people tend to live by other black people. If someone's going to rob you or, or steal or, you know, or kill somebody or whatever, they're going to usually do that. And they're not driving across town, you know, <laughs> right? You know, to go do that, you know. Right. Um, but yeah, black, pe- black people are, you know, disproportionately arrested for or had been, you know, have been for marijuana possession. I say had been because marijuana is being legalized and decriminalized in many different places. And so things are different. But when but but when it wasn't that way, you know, black people would severe would uh, sorry, suffer much more severe consequences for marijuana possession or be stopped and searched for drugs at a much higher rate than their white counterparts, even though white people are statistically more likely to be carrying contraband on them. And why would they be, right? Why would white people feel more comfortable carrying contraband? Because you're less likely to be stopped. <laughs> that doesn't, doesn't that right. make sense? Right? You can look at the uh, 80s and look at, look at how, look at the punishment for doing crack cocaine and, and doing cocaine, you know? Mm. Why? Because crack cocaine was more prevalent in black neighborhoods, you know? And when we want to talk about how it got there, you know, in, in the first place. But, you know, you can go yeah. down the list. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole war on drugs was was massively disproportionate in terms of its effect on Absolutely. Yeah, and on the society. architects of the war on drugs, we have recordings of them and interviews with, that, that, they, that they did where they spelled out that the war on drugs was a war on um, activists, anti-war activists. And black people, (laughs) it's documented. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ugh. Um, One of the things that you have in the book that I thought was was um, very powerful is you talk about this social scientist and activist Brian Mm. Martin, um, who wrote extensively on it on um, uh, in his book Backfire Manual. Mm -hmm. Uh, He explains that oppressors use a common set of tactics to avoid upsetting the public. They cover up their crimes, devalue their victims, reinterpret their actions, use official channels to give an appearance of justice. And if all fails, all else fails, intimidate or bribe their victims into silence. And then you say, and this is a brilliant quote, black America has watched this pattern of outrage management about black suffering for years. Yeah, it's kind of the rhythm that we've seen, you know, when, you know, when, uh, okay, when Ahmaud Arbery was shot. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We didn't hear about that for like three weeks. <laughs> you know, there's there's the cover up. You know, as soon as as soon as you know we hear about one of these things, they want to tell us what kind of drugs were in their system when they were killed. Why does that matter? You know, well because they want to associate that person with crime. You know, and they did the same thing with Trayvon Martin when they show you know and Mike Brown and all these other people when they show you the pictures. You know, and they want they want to show you the pictures online where this person will look like what you might call a thug, right? 
so people can say, mm, yeah. well, he might not have done anything wrong when the police kill him, but he wasn't a good per- He was no angel, right? Right. right he was right. no angel. I remember Right. That, yeah. Of course, people love to say that. He was no angel. So, all right. I don't even remember out the top of my head because, you know, but the... Uh, cover up, devalue, uh, using official channels. This happened with George Floyd, I believe. You know, because the whole it took the whole world to protest to convict Derek Chauvin. I don't think that Derek Chauvin would have been convicted if the whole world didn't protest. And so, yeah. So the way to the way to stop the movement momentum is actually to put him on trial and convict him. So now everyone will go home because to them that's justice being served. When really justice being served is no more George Floyd's. When the, yeah. the only justice for George Floyd is to abolish the systems and, the con- and to look at the conditions that led to his death and to make structural changes so that type of thing doesn't happen again. You know, you know but we'll settle for Derek Chauvin going to jail. <laughs> That's a whole other part yeah. of this episode. Yeah, this, he's... The sacrificial lamb, as yeah, it were. In a, in a sense, you could say it like that, but that's you know that. So that's a part of that's a part of the um, the using official official channel channels, and I think after that, you know, I, I don't remember all of them off the top of my head, but you get what I'm saying. You know, you can go down the list, yeah. and then intimidation yeah. is the last one, and you know, of course, we've seen that with the police literally just beating down protesters or offering them jobs in government. Yeah. You know, you can also offer you can also offer activists. You know, jobs in government or in, you know, high positions in NGOs or something like that. And that can also stop the movement, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yeah, this is what Brian Martin writes about in his work. And it, I think that it's very powerful. And I think that people should really pay attention to it. Yeah, yeah it's it's a it was a really strange and terrifying thing to see the just the 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 amount of police brutality that occurred even during the, the protests where just to try to silence the crowd. I mean, we had it here happen here in Columbus. Mm-hmm. You know, we had protests downtown and, and we saw even members of the press get, uh, you know, maced or tear gassed or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it just seemed like they didn't care who it was, if they felt like you were protesting or a part of it. Um, you know, they tried to silence you as quickly as possible. And it was almost always through the use of yes, force. Yes, of course. Of course. They don't, they don't want for us to, to organize this kind of thing, you know, and that should tell us how powerful it is. And that's the thing about this conversation about racism is that we're always having these conversations and saying, well, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? And how can we change? And how can we come together? And, and all those things. But the truth is that racial progress has, in this country, <laughs> racial progress has always been the result of people organizing resistance, right? It's always been the, the product mm-hmm. of organized resistance on the part of the oppressed you know and we're trying to have this conversation and trying and talk and talking as though we want solutions while bypassing that part and i don't understand what makes us think that we'll be able to do that when it's not been done before which tells me that people really do think that the situation is much different right they must they have to think that the situation Mm. is not as serious or as entrenched or as violent as it is because they think that we're just going to sit down and talk. And if we just talk enough, then we'll understand one another 
and you know we'll live happily ever after well black people already for the most part if if black people who have gone through this awakening or were always taught the truth already have an understanding of this of this country and of how growing up in this system uh, causes us to think and to act in many ways we understand some things about white america that white america doesn't understand about itself you know so we don't actually really need yeah. to come to the table and and both understand each other no we need white people to understand that they live in a colonized society and that they think a certain way because of that and that they act and behave a certain way because of that and to stop and to work together to dismantle that system yeah and and i think to your point, I think um, obviously there's a large portion of the country that still has not awakened to that reality mm-hmm. yet. And you talk about, and, and part of your book, you know, the name of your book is all the the, the white friends I couldn't keep. Mm-hmm. And and um, so talk a little bit about what led to that. I mean, you talk in the book about uh, your friend Kevin mm-hmm. uh, and and some of the conversations you had, and just kind of probably what it showed you in terms of where we're at in our understanding. Yeah, so the book came, the book and the title, the title came from, you know, um, an open letter that I wrote to the white friends I couldn't keep, the white people that I, many white friends and family, you know, that I considered family that I grew up with or I met in seminary or, or you know, somewhere along the way. And as I, as I began to, um, to kind of get into, I kind of stumbled into activism you know, so as I began to that journey, you know, um, many of the white people that I called close friends and family, you know, they 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 opposed, they disagreed, you know, and uh, they they took issue with what I was doing, and so you know they come out and mm. you know tell me that I'm a racist and. You know, I'm part of the problem, and Dr. King would be so ashamed. And you're of me. a racist. Yeah. yeah. You wow. Know, all this kind of stuff. And so I wrote them an open letter, and I, you know, I explained, you know, well, actually, that, well, before I wrote the letter, there were years of us going back and forth, and then I just had to say, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep having this basic conversation about whether or not racism is actually a problem, whether or not it exists. You know, and all this kind of stuff. These are not my issues. These are your issues. You know, I know racism mm-hmm. is a problem. It affects me. I know that there's a way to fight it. I don't care if you don't think think that. And I don't care if you think I'm not going about it the right way because you're not doing anything. So how would you know? You haven't tried anything. You haven't studied it. You know, and I just it's crazy making to keep going back and forth with right. people who, again, are not actually trying to have the conversation with you. They're trying to shut it down. So I just said, all right, well, yeah, I can't keep doing this. It was hard. It was hurtful. I cried, cried so many times mm. thinking about these people and how I can't get through to them, you know. But I knew that if I if there was no way for me to actually make progress by talking with people who don't want to move. So I wrote this letter to them online and it went viral. And, you know, next thing you know, an agent reached out to me and he felt like there was a book that could be written from the blog, you know. But I mean, yes, that that's where the, the conflict in the book comes from, where the title in the book comes from that's saying 
you know, for black people that want to go on this journey, you know, really anyone who wants to go on this journey is probably going to have people in their lives that you are close to that is going to think that you shouldn't be doing that. They're going to stand up against you. In this case, for me, because it was around black liberation, it was a bunch of white people in my life. Gosh, that it, it, it makes me think of like some of those conversations make me think of like it, it just doesn't doesn't make sense to me either. It's like the two of us trying to tell a woman who's been through labor, you know, that, well, contractions aren't that bad. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, what? I, I would have no idea what that's right. like, nor will I ever. Yeah. Right. And it, it seems to me a lot of that stems from just a lack of a willingness to humble ourselves enough to shut up and listen. I think a, a lot of times, like, we want to help, but our way of helping is to try to, like, you know, say that we have the answers and we know how to fix it instead of listening to the people who are actually going through that very thing. Right, and I write about that kind of unhelpfulness later on in the book because I find out that there are white people in the movement mm. that I couldn't keep, you know, because the thing is, and I'm <laughs> I'm reading about this also in The Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo, Paulo Freire. I always, I always get nervous about pronouncing his last name, but talks about how <laughs> it talks about the oppressed I'm with, sorry those who belong to the privileged group you know how mm-hmm. when they try to come and quote unquote help they end up often causing the same kind of harm because they haven't you know realized that the thing they're fighting against is in them right this, the world that you say yeah. that you want to dismantle is the world that formed you, is the world that taught you how to be and how to think. And so you have to also do some personal internal work to confront the ways that you have been shaped by that situation. Yeah. And one of the things you talk about, too, is you talk about the fact that in order for anything to change, white people have to be willing to relinquish some power mm-hmm. there, you know, because right now... You know, it, it's a lot of institutions trying to retain power at all oh, costs, yeah, no matter what. And yeah. absolutely, yeah. I mean, we're. I mean, that is what we're talking about when we talk about racism, and that's the thing: is that racism is about power. And so, if we're going to end racism, it has something to do with power, right? And that's what I keep saying: is that you know, people want to have this conversation without talking about power. Right. And so they think that if we just if we just hug each other enough <laughs> and have enough conversations, <laughs> if we then, right. you know, if we just if we just listen to the last part of Dr. King's speech at the March on Washington, enough, oh, then we won't have to work on this. But racism has to do with our very existence as a species. The stakes are that high, you know, as climate change um, is already impacting <laughs> the what we call the global south, you know. Black and brown people are already mm. experiencing climate disaster, or, you know. And the IPCC, I think that's the name of the organization, I can't remember, but yeah. they linked, you know, climate change to colonialism you know colonialism is part of this problem because it helped to establish an extractive exploitative system right 
Mm. What those mm-hmm. plantations and the way that they were farming, it hurt the land itself, you know. And we're not giving the land, it's it's we're not giving the land the proper time to rest and recover and to produce things in a sustainable way. They're indigenous people who have been forcefully, violently removed from their lands, continuing to be uh, oppressed and marginalized. Um, And some of them who rise up against these huge corporations that continue to harm the land are killed, right? You know, the stakes are that high, (laughs) you know? There are black and brown people that live in America who lived, you know, uh, lived in, in Louisiana when Hurricane Katrina came through, right? Um, and devastated and devastated. So it's not just the global south. It also happens in America, right? Black and brown communities are, are most, more likely to be situated, you know, in areas where the, where the environment is not as harmful for human beings to live. And this is just me talking about ecology, Right. But the entire system was built on this. But land is essential to the foundation of the system. Right. Saying that white bodies get to exist here and black bodies have to exist somewhere else. Right. And you can go from where you can trace that line to the segregated neighborhoods to where the highways were built. Right. And then you can look and then you can trace from there from where the highways were built to the abandoned and dilapidated inner cities. And the, and, and the suburbs and those conditions and all that kind of stuff. You know, we can trace this throughout. I mean, black people have, are, uh, are disproportionately affected, you know, in all of these different areas of society. And that all has to do with power. Who can, who can change? Because power is about being able to accomplish a goal, right? Mm-hmm. So if you, want to, if you want to make things equal... <laughs> You have to talk about who has the power because to correct those kinds of things, right? You know that most of the racial wealth gap is student loan debt, right? If you were to cancel student loan debt, you would significantly reduce the racial wealth gap. Well, who has the power to do that, right? Okay, maybe the federal government has the power to do it, you know, but if they don't, do we? You know, and I think that we do, but we have to, as people, take responsibility for doing that and organize it if we want that kind of intervention. Not every intervention can be that way, but there are some. And so I know I'm going on and on and on about this, but I'm saying that we keep on trying to have this conversation about racism as though we don't have to think about those things, but we do, (laughs) Yeah, and those and those feel like very tangible things, you know that 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 we could organize around and accomplish. I, I think a lot of people are like, "Well, the problem's too big; it's too complex. I, I'm powerless," and so they just, you know, for whatever reason, don't don't take action and, and don't help to solve the problems. Mm-hmm. But that feels like something that's very very doable, right? Like. I had no idea that student debt would have such a massive impact in that way. I, I mean, I know a lot of my friends are just buried in student mm-hmm. student loan debt, but but having that sort of impact on on the uh, inequality, yeah. um, you know, I, I had no idea. That's yeah, yeah. You know. And and the thing is, you can't. Okay, so I saw somebody I saw somebody post about this on Instagram the other day, and and they're saying you know. 
that some people are saying about the student loan debt. Well, you know, I had to pay mine, and so, you know, they should have to pay theirs. And he said, and they're right. And I'm like, no, (laughs) (laughs) they're actually not right. (laughs) I mean, if you want to look at it in a reductionistic way, sure. But you cannot Mm -hmm. actually have a complete conversation about student loan debt without talking about the economic head start that white people have had in this country. Because land theft and genocide Mm. and slave labor, all of those things, you know, and then not to mention, you know, after emancipation, Jim Crow and all them something, all those things. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> all them yeah. something is a patwa thing. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's a verbal pause. All them something. <laughs> uh, but I think you understand, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm using more of my Jamaican accent lately and, you know, speaking patwa because I had a conversation with a friend the other day where she just put on a British accent and she said, do you do accents? I said, no, but I do have some. Obviously, you know, Jamaica is one of them. And she said... Oh, and I told her, I, I want to talk this way because when my father dies, you know, this, who is the last mm-hmm. person who's close to me, really, who sounds Jamaican, I don't want for people, I don't want for them to be forgotten. I never want for my Jamaican heritage to be forgotten. And so I want for people, when they talk to me, for them to know exactly where my ancestors come from, from the start. So on that note, I'm just going to go deeper into it because I've been kind of vacillating (laughs) a little bit. But no, I'm just going to go into it and just make it just deep and nice and just make it just come out (laughs) of my mouth and just, you know, I'm just going to do it now because I've been shy about it. So. No, when people, no, when people say, let it, let it be free. When people say, when did Andre become Jamaican? It's going to be. When in the John Williamson podcast, when in the, about midway yeah, through, when in, yeah. when in, <laughs> when in the, when in the podcast with John with John uh, with Williamson. So, all right, what was I saying before I said uh, about the okay the student loans? So I said no, they're not yes. right. They're not right about that because you you can't have a you can't have a complete conversation about this without factoring in the way that racism gave white people a head start. And so black people have been behind economically. They've been behind white people economically for centuries, not because something is wrong with us, not because we don't work hard and all those and all them something. It's because <laughs> it's because of something systemic that happened. Now, could we just work hard and make up that gap? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know the answer to that question. But why should we have to do that? Right? If you go if you yeah. if you go and look at a race, and I mean like a foot race, right? And and on the yeah. track you have on the track you have um the first three lanes, they don't have any hurdles. But all of a sudden when you look at the fourth lane, it has all of these hurdles in it, right? Well, you could say, well, if yeah. that man was fast enough, <laughs> he could right. jump over all of those hurdles and still win the race. But why should he have to? Right? And so that's all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, kind of going back to the church and, and just... Um, 
tying tying in like Christianity mm-hmm. specifically, that's my tradition mm-hmm. as well. Um, for, from my perspective, the church has not done a very good job at stepping up in the role in which it should be taking, mm-hmm. you know, during, during these, this period of time. Like I expected way more of a vocal uh, response to a lot of these things yeah. happening. And it seemed like there was some, but not, not a lot, right? Like, so as someone who has two degrees in theology, mm-hmm. um, how disheartening is that? Like you're what you're waiting. I'm sure you, like a lot of us are waiting for the church to step up and say, no, this isn't right. Yeah. And, and yet we see things like instances, like you mentioned Katrina, yeah. where there's a mega church down there that could house all the thousands of people yeah. and kept their doors locked. And I'm like, what is going on yeah. here? Well, you know, I did I did hope that the church would have been more active and confront these things, but you know, I really did try. I tried. You know, you know the reason why I don't I don't call myself a theologian anymore and the reason why I don't and I and I have that on my website and all those things anymore is because I tried mm-hmm. so hard to get the Christian people around me to engage this struggle as a matter of discipleship, worship, Christian faithfulness, missions, whatever. I tried it all, you know, mm-hmm. and I just got so much pushback, right? Just so much mm. opposition to that. And, um, you know, I'm not saying that no Christians are about that because there are there are there are actually a lot of Christians throughout history who have been, you know, who have been anti-slavery and, you know, been anti-racist and all those things. But, you know, I just stopped because what you said, you know, and I don't know if you're it was your tradition evangelicalism. Okay, no. okay, okay. <laughs> so, no. but I came from, you know, the evangelical world, so you know all that all that passion and you know that that they that they have for you know in worship and about the bible and all these things i just thought naturally naturally this would make sense but the history of that tradition in particular is um that yeah i mean john Ed, jonathan edwards was a slaveholder and he's the founder of evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. And when you look back in church history, it's not just evangelical, evangelical, but the Catholics and, you know, um, it's just a part of a, of a mainstream Christianity is the anti-blackness is what I'm saying. It's taken me a long time to just say that racism has been a part of the Christian tradition of some many Christian traditions for a long time. Now, luckily it's not mm-hmm. the only tradition of Christianity that's ever existed in the world. And so you know you have you have pastors that walk this trail of tears with indigenous people, and you have you know um, abolitionists and people like Nat Turner, and you know and all that kind of thing. So you have other examples to look at. And for me, m- much of what I argue in the book is to stop trying to convince people who don't want to go, and to find those people. You know, in this context, we're talking about Christianity. So, you know, find those Christians. But yeah. it, it goes for every, for anything, you know. You know, just find mm-hmm. the people who 
who know the truth, who share your values, who are willing to do the work and work with them. Yeah, I love that. Uh, that, that actually was my next question. Say so you beat me to it. But <laughs> just talking about, you know, this 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 notion that um and you mentioned it before, you, you touched on it earlier, is that just white and black people just need to meet at the table and have a conversation as if, you know, that's gonna yeah. solve everything. And <clears throat> and you mentioned that in the book, you know, you talk about that what you just said, you know, is you, you need to to find like-minded people. Um, yeah, the truth about you know, unity is that divisive people create change. That's the truth about unity. Right? Mm. And Dr. King was a very divisive person and many civil rights leaders. The civil rights movement was a very divisive thing. It divided not just black from white, but it, it divided white people who wanted racism from, from white people who at least thought they didn't want racism. Right. So that's one thing. But mm. also the proverbial table needs some, needs some interrogation because we're clamoring for a seat at a table that we shouldn't even be sitting at, right? Because mm. what a lot of people don't understand is, like I said before, the stakes are extremely high. Human existence is on the table as a species, right? Extinction is on the table. And extinction is on the table largely because of this capitalist system, the global capitalist system that we live in. And like Cedric Roberts Robinson said, there is no capitalism without racism. That is how it that is how modern capitalism came to be. You know, you don't have all of this capitalist industry growing without the slave trade. <laughs> that was the labor that created the commodities and the profits, right? And now that system, that logic is continuing up to now. And now the whole human species is in danger, right? So if you think you want a seat at that table so you can win at that game, you're asking to play a part in our extinction. We need a different table. Or a different piece of furniture altogether. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe just some chairs. Maybe not even a table. <laughs> oh, man. So I, I know we're getting close on time here. So what is kind of your, your hope, your, your general hope for the yeah. book? Um, for me, I know it was massively educational. But what do you hope for folks to, to gain from, um, yeah. from this book? I hope that people you know, that they read it and that they get fired up about social change and that they understand that it's possible, you know, for us to make a change. I hope that I hope that movements use this book, that they recommend it to, to newcomers into the movement so they can get a, an understanding of how social social movements are built and what makes them stronger. And, um, you know, what really, and I think that this comes out in the book, what really changed my life was reading. I just, I studied and I read so much and those books changed my life and those, and it gave me the idea that, you know, I can, I can make a difference, you know, with people and that we can write history together. And so I am hoping that my book will do the same for other people. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. I I love your work. Um, you know, uh, it, by reading this, I would have thought it was like your fifteenth book. It's <laughs> it's just really well written, and 
I, I you Thank know, you. And, Thank uh, you. and like I said, super educational. So I appreciate what you're doing. Um, uh, where can people keep up on what you're up to and where can people grab a copy? Yeah, of this book? The best place is to go to my website is andrehenry.co. That's where you can keep in touch with me. All my social media is there and all that. And um, my email list is there um, where, you know, I send out an email. I was doing it once a week and then I went once a month. And now I think I'm going back to once a week because there's just so much to, to say and to be done. So, yeah, that's a great place to keep in touch. And you can get the book wherever books are sold, pretty much. Um, especially the major re- retailers. And uh, uh, and it's also done really well with the independent bookstores as well. So that, that could work, too. Good. Good. Yeah, we try to support. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate My it. Uh, this is a great conversation. And uh, yeah, keep doing what you're doing, man. This is this is great. All work. right. Great to meet you. John was young and driven with a heart of gold Finished seminary, married, found a church he could call home Made a living, giving, dying folks a shoulder and a hand Until he told his lead that he had some feelings for another man and they said John you must go and take your broken heart and walk it to the door we know you're But now you're damaged goods and you gotta give some more John, we love you But we can't love you You must go
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.